The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. It's good to be with you. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad that you've joined us, especially if you're new. Uh, we'd love to meet you and connect with you. Our vision and goal as a church is to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. And so if you are new to the city or new to Jesus or exploring this whole thing, we'd love to come alongside of you in any way that we can help. Uh, we'd love to meet you. Easiest way to do that is to scan that little QR code on the back of the card on your seat, fill that out, and we'll get in touch with you. And uh, it'll be great and dandy. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be hanging out this morning. Colossians Colossians chapter 3. Let me pray for us. Ask the Lord to, to do what he's already done, which is be here and, and meet us here, um, but just to help us because I don't know about you, but I'm coming in with just a lot of stuff on my mind, a lot of stuff on my heart. And so I think it's just fitting to pause for a minute and to be silent before the Lord. And so let's just take a moment and to do that now. If it's helpful to close your eyes, if it's helpful to open up your hands, if it's helpful just to take a deep breath, we're embodied beings. And so let's try as much as able to connect our bodies with our souls for just a minute and just be quiet with God. Lord, we want the words of our mouths to be true. That we would not just sing good ideas about finding our hope and all in you, but that more and more that would be our actual lived reality. And so would you help us? Do what only you can do. Take your word, push it into our hearts, and change our lives. We need you. We trust in you. We hope in you, Lord. You should be with us. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning with a hypothetical conversation. So imagine you were talking to a newly married friend of yours, a new husband, some guy that just got married, and you were curious. You want to know how his marriage is going. And so you ask him, Hey, hey man, how's marriage? And specifically, you want to know, Hey, is anything different? Like, what's different about your life now, now that you've entered into being married? And imagine you ask that question, and they respond something like this. Well, okay, let me see. Now that I'm married, I stopped dating other women. I stopped living on my own. 
I stopped only buying groceries and cooking meals for one person, and I stopped having any say in how my house was going to be decorated. And maybe you'd find yourself thinking, that's great, but like anything else? Like that, that seems kind of lopsided that you would just give me a bunch of things now that you're a married man, you have stopped doing? Like, have you started doing anything? Are there any new realities to your life now that you are a husband? Now, while that's a pretty silly hypothetical, I think it's actually a pretty accurate representation of sort of the default of how many people, both inside and outside the church, tend to think what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian, more often than not, is defined by a list of don'ts, right? To be a Christian in the popular connotation of the word means you don't. You don't have sex, you don't drink, you don't cuss, you don't smoke, you don't be mean. Well, that's maybe the more kind of out there caricatured version. I think many of us actually believe this is true in much more subtle ways. For example, just think for a moment about the last few times you confessed your sin to God or to another Christian. How often was your confession focused on a wrong you did that you shouldn't have done? And how often was your confession focused on something right that you failed to do that you should have done? I know in my life, I'm much quicker to confess an outburst of anger than I am my failure to share the gospel out of fear with my friend. I know I'm more likely to confess like I did this past week at community group, my coveting, my desire to have what others have than I am my own lack of acts of generosity. That can show us that functionally, we often think of following Jesus as a list of things we stop doing, but not as an invitation to things we start doing as well. Now, Christianity, to be clear, has a whole list of don'ts involved. That's true. But if you track through the scriptures for any amount of time, you'll start to notice Jesus and the authors of the New Testament are just as, if not more concerned by what you will start doing if you choose to follow him. Almost every list of don'ts come with a list of do's, attributes, actions, embodied ways of being that now mark our lives as followers of Christ. And that is true here in Colossians chapter 3. So if you missed it last week, we're kind of in a two-week little mini-series on Colossians chapter 3. And we're exploring together this idea of what the Bible calls sanctification. Now, in case you missed it or just forgot, here's the definition for us. Sanctification is the work of God over the course of our lives where he shapes us through our active participation to look more like Jesus. I'll say it again, give you a chance to write it down. The work of God over the course of our lives, where he shapes us through our active participation to look more like Jesus. Last week, we started by grounding ourselves in the good news of the gospel, that our deep heart level motivation for wanting to say no to the things that are earthly, to the things that used to mark us, is the fact that we are in Christ new creations. That the Bible says when you put your faith in Jesus, your old self, your old way of living and being and doing has died, and you were risen and raised to new life in Christ. And so now, in light of that reality, we say no to some stuff, yes and amen. We talked about that last week sexual immorality, anger, slander, idolatry, but just as crucial, where I want to go today, in learning to live out your identity as a follower of Jesus is not just what you'll stop doing, but also what you'll start doing, what you'll put on, to use the language of the passage. So here's where we're headed, just like last week, same outline, what, how, why, all right, no takers, you're welcome again, what, what do we do, what do we put on, how do we put it on, why do we put it on, that's the three kind of where we're headed today, what do we put on, 
How do we put it on? Why do we put it on? Let's start with that first question. What do we, according to Colossians 3, put on? What do we put on? Look with me at verse 12. Three words, put on then. All right, real quick, just pause there. Just like last week we said, we are free to say no to sin. The same is true this week. We are free to say yes to the things of God. Meaning, you are not a slave to your feelings. You are not beholden to your current emotional state. You are not exempt from following Jesus because of your personality type or personal history or past or present experiences. You have the capacity and the command as a follower of Jesus to live like Jesus. It's true in the scriptures. Put on then. It's an active phrasing. And in the light of that, here's some things he tells us to put on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. A few things. Let's work through them together. Here's a few things that should mark your life as a follower of Jesus. Number one, compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. Deep-seated pain or hurt over someone else's difficulty or misfortune. Misfortune. We might commonly refer to this in modern day as empathy. The ability to see the struggle someone else is going through and not stand back reserved, not defend our own emotional state, but actually step in and weep with someone else. Second thing we see is kindness. Kindness. Now in the Bible, kindness is not simply being a nice person. Kindness is the tangible meeting of real needs. To be kind, according to the scriptures, is to step in relationally, emotionally, physically, tangibly to help take care of someone else's lack. The third thing he's going to tell us is humility. Thinking of others more highly and more often than yourself. If you want to know a good picture of humility, humility means when you enter into a room, you don't think, here I am, but rather, there you are. I'm so glad to see you. You're getting your eyes off of yourself and on to another. The fourth thing we see is meekness. Meekness in the scriptures is an active and deliberate acceptance of undesirable circumstances. Meekness is the active and deliberate acceptance of undesirable circumstances, meaning it's the ability to be hurt and to not lash out and not play victim and not sulk and not pout. It means to absorb the hit. That's what meekness is in the scriptures. The fifth thing that he tells us is patience. This goes right along with meekness. The Bible's idea of patience is often translated as long-suffering, the ability to wait with joy as we teach our toddler over a long time, even with hurtful or frustrating circumstances or people. And then lastly, in verse 13, he's going to tell us to forgive. Freely extending grace and pardon to someone else. Choosing to overlook when someone hurts you. Choosing to extend grace when someone does something you'd rather them not do. Choosing to reconcile and resolve conflict, not fuel the fire of bitterness. So those are the things he tells us to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness. And then he sums it up perfectly in verse 14. And above all these, put on love. Love that. Above all these, put on love. Above all these, aka really what Paul says I'm talking about in this whole list is this, love. Love. Love at a base level is what should mark your life towards others, especially in the church now that you are a Christian. Love. You put on love. As a follower of Jesus, your life becomes known and marked by love. Love, not in a cultural sense. Love not when it's easy. Love not when it's readily returned. Love not when you like them. Love not to help them be the best version of themselves. Love is a sacrificial giving of yourself for the godly good of another. 
That's what we see in Jesus, right? That's what we see in the love of Christ, that he comes at great cost to himself for our godly good. Not to make us the secularized version of the best us, but to make us the redeemed holy version of the best us in Christ. He sacrifices his good out of love. This is the number one thing that now defines your life as a follower of Jesus. So much so that John would go to this length in 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. That's how clear the scriptures would be. If you want to know if you're in Christ or not, if you want to know if you're a follower of Jesus, is love a marker of your life in increasing measure? Do you embody, do you put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness towards those around you? Which, once again, is easier said than done, right? Like, I don't think that's the shocking revelation of this morning, right? Like, I don't think if you have any experience with Jesus or Christianity at all, you're coming in here being like, the pastor told us to love each other? What? Like, that's not how it goes. The difficulty, once again, in the Christian life is the gap. The gap. The gap between what you know to be true and how you actually live. The gap between I know how scripture calls me to live and have my being in the world and how I actually live on Tuesday at 4 p.m. And so let's talk about how do we shrink the gap? How do we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Paul, put on love more and more? So let's talk about that. He's going to give us three things in the passage. Three ways to put on love. Everybody good? Everybody all right? Sweet. Cool. Number one. Here we go. Three things. Number one, remember you're a part of the body of Christ. Remember you're a part of the body of Christ. Remember you Christian are a part of the body of Christ. Look at verse 15. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Now, when Paul says your hearts here in the passage, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, the your is plural. So what he's not saying is let the peace of Christ rule in your individual heart. He's not talking about your inner peace and tranquility. He's not talking about your ability to be hopeful in the midst of tough circumstances. That's true in scripture. That is promised to us, Philippians 4, right? Cast your cares to the Lord. He will give you peace that passes all understanding. That's true. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is using a plural form of your. If you were Southern like me, you could say y'all. Let the peace of Christ rule in y'all's hearts. What he means by that is not inner tranquil peace, but rather the interpersonal reconciling peace of Christ that unites you to another believer. That's made even more clear in the second part of verse 15. The peace of Christ to which indeed you were called in what? One body. All right, so let me explain. When you become a Christian... When you put your faith in Jesus, you become, through Christ, a part of what the Bible calls the church, the big C church. That is everyone around the world and throughout history who also professes faith in Jesus. You're now a part of that group. You didn't choose to become a part of it. You don't get to say, do I want to become a part of the big C church or not? You just are a part of it through Christ Jesus. That's a reality. Now, you get to choose which little C local church you live out that big C church reality with, but as a Christian, you immediately, through Christ, become a part of the big C church. And there's tons of ways this church is described in the Bible. It's described as the family of God. It's described as the temple of God, where God's spirit dwells. It's described as the bride of Christ, who's waiting in expectation for our bridegroom to return. But one of the most prominent ways the church is described in the scriptures is as the body of Christ. 
Christ is the head of the church and we are his body. Meaning we are connected. If you are a follower of Jesus and I am a follower of Jesus, we are connected like your elbow to your hand. Just think about that illustration for a minute, right? We are connected like your elbow to your hand or like an ankle to a foot, whatever works for you. That is how thick our attachment, not should be as Christians, but is as Christians. Which means that peace, that body reality is what rules, Paul says, over our interpersonal relationships within the church. What that means is if you're like a hand and I'm like an elbow, you cannot say you don't need me. And I cannot say I don't need you. And you cannot say that I'm annoying, (laughs) and I cannot say that you're annoying, and you cannot cut me out of your life, and I cannot cut you out of my life, except at great harm and great cost and great pain. The only way to separate these two things is by a lot of money and a lot of pain. That's what it means to be a part of the body. And so Paul says we let that rule over our lives. Let me give you another illustration, see if you can get it. One of the things we've been doing lately uh, is repeating over and over to Harper, our three-year-old, and Nora, our one-year-old, the reality that they are best friends. We've been saying this all the time to Harper. We've been asking it all the time. Harper, who's your best friend? Nora. Hey, Harper, is Nora your best friend? Yes. Like, we're just trying to just get this into her as much as possible. We've been doing it enough now where she actually will start saying it on her own. So she will run up to our one-year-old who's just sitting minding her own business, and she, a little bit too loudly, will yell, Nora, you're my best friend. Give me a squeeze. And she'll just, and it's like, let her breathe, please. It's a work in progress. But our goal in that is that we would repeat that identifying reality so much that she would eventually believe it's true, and then it would drive her actions. That her identity, this is my best friend. That her beliefs, her this is my best friend, would drive her identity. Nora and I are best friends, which would then drive the way they treat each other. And so we're repeating it over and over and over again. Your best friends, your best friends, your best friends, until until by saying it, they believe it, and by believing it, they live as if it's true. Because here's what's true about all of our lives, right? Belief drives identity, and identity drives action. And the same is true here for Paul. If I believe I've been bought into the body of Christ, then I identify with that body, which will then lead me to treat others like we're a part of that body together. Which let me just give you a gift here. This is why every single Sunday when we gather, one of the unmovable parts of our liturgy is pass the peace. One of the things we do every Sunday is we take two minutes to greet people around us, not because we hate you, introverts. I'm an introvert. I don't like it either that much. But because what we're doing every single, six, every single seven days is we're reminding ourselves, oh yeah, I'm a part of something bigger than me. Oh yeah, I'm a part of the body of Christ. Oh yeah, I'm connected to others like a hand to an elbow. Oh yeah, I've been reconciled to you, person, within this church. And so hopefully week in and week out, that belief would then actually begin to shape our identity, which would then begin to shape our action. So next Sunday, when we do pass the peace and we take the two minutes, don't be like, oh, dang it. Step into it going, yes, what a beautiful reminder that I'm a part of the body of Christ. Let that drive you into action throughout the week. Make sense? Number two. Number two, be thankful for your present community. Be thankful for your present community. Look back at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And what? Be thankful. This one seems really basic, almost so basic we miss it. Gratitude, and this is not just true for living in relationships, this is true for all of the Christian life, if you are not learning to be grateful, you will never be sanctified. 
Gratitude is a key to being sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's a key towards growing your love for God and love for others. If you want to learn how to love other Christians more, you have to learn to be thankful for them. This is Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his beautiful, incredible book, Life Together. He writes this, Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ, long before we entered into community or common life with them, then because of that, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We thank God for what he has done for us. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call, by his forgiveness and his promise. In other words, according to Bonhoeffer and according to Paul in Colossians 3, how do we put on love? By learning to be thankful for those around us. And why are we thankful for those people? Because we realize that Christ himself has brought us into his body. What a gift. And this is how it often it seems to go pastorally with folks as I kind of watch them become new to our church family. Is what often happens is it always starts with gratitude. Like someone will be new to the city, they'll be new to our church, and they'll jump in. And one of the things I love that God has done in our church is made us a welcoming people. Like that's, I, I will go to bat for that. Like I think we are incredibly welcoming as a church family. And we hear this all the time from folks who are new. I joined a group, I showed up on Sunday, and I was just welcomed like I belonged. And that's beautiful. And that's worth celebrating. That's worth patting the Holy Spirit on your back on behalf of yourself. <laughs> Check me out theologically. I think it's right. But here's what happens. Is they're in group for six months, nine months, a year, usually around that year mark is when it really starts to become clear, is what they started being so grateful for. Man, I'm so grateful that I have people who love me in this huge city, that I have a place to belong, slowly starts to become assumed, slowly then transitions into lack of gratitude, and then bitterness and frustration. And nothing about the community has changed at all. They're just as welcoming, just as loving, just as kind, just as generous. But what has changed is they've stopped receiving it as recipients of gratitude and rather started assuming it. And with assumptions comes demands. And with demands comes bitterness and frustration. So Paul says, if you want to learn to love the people next to you, the real tangible people next to you, remember he says later in life together, not your dream of community, but the real community actually right in front of you, learn to be grateful. When you're showing up to group on Tuesday night going, man, I'm so grateful I can just be here. I know that sometimes we annoy each other. And I know that sometimes that we're frustrating to each other. I know that it's different personalities and different wirings and different backgrounds and different theology positions. I know that this is going on in here. But man, if I'm not grateful that these people love God and love me. Just receive that with gratitude. Because here's the reality, church. That person across from you who's frustrating you is always a gift from God. Always. Sometimes they're a gift where they bless you and they care for you and they're generous to you and they serve you and that's a gift. And sometimes they're a gift because they frustrate you and annoy you and sin against you. And God's using that to sanctify you. Both times they're a gift. So you receive it as a gift. Number three, memorize God's word. Memorize God's word. Verse 16. But the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The third way we learn to be a people of love is we remember we're part of the body of Christ, we're thankful for that body, and then we become full of God's word. 
Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You, you meditate on it, you memorize it, you read it, you study it, you hear it taught, you sing it, you let God's word make its home in you. So the question becomes, how? How does that lead to love? How does God's word lead to love? Well, I don't think you can get very far in the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, without seeing God's desire and design that you love his people like he does. Without encountering one of the, get this, 59 one another commands in the New Testament. 59 times from Matthew 1 to the end of Revelation, we are told to forgive one another, love one another, serve one another, and care for one another. You can't make your home in the scriptures and let it make it home in you very long without reading passages like Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Or Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. So we let those passages through memorizing and meditating on God's word and sitting with it in stillness and silence dwell richly in us and then produce what it always does, fruit, a life of change, a life of love. Because here's what the Holy Spirit does. When you are faithful to hide God's word in your heart, you know what's going to come up at just the right moment when you don't want to be a person of love in that relationship? The word of God. I saw this so clearly in my own life just a couple of weeks ago. So if you were around before Easter over Lent, we did a series on prayer called Teach Us to Pray. And one of the rhythms of our church during that series was to pray the Lord's Prayer every single morning. And so for seven weeks, seven times a week, I was praying this one line, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And I'd wake up the next day, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then months after that series, just a couple of weeks ago, you know what happens? Lindsay and I get in a fight. Because what do married couples do sometimes? They fight. And I'm an expert, I mean, the Lord is sanctifying me, expert grudge holder. Like I can just sit in it. I can just hold it. It's bad how good I am at it. And what happens when we're in that fight and everything within me wants to hold bitterness and grudge in my heart? What does the Holy Spirit bring to mind? Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. That's how the Holy Spirit uses the word of God in our lives. This is part of why the practice of scripture is a central and formative practice in our church. It's one of our core, four core practices, scripture, prayer, Sabbath, and hospitality. That's our four main ones. If we want to get you following Jesus, we want you doing those four, reading your Bible, praying, welcoming others missionally into your home, and taking a day off to rest with God and his people. That's the four, prayer, scripture, Sabbath, hospitality. And the reason why scripture is so prominent is not because of the immediate effects it brings when you sit down to read it. It has nothing to do with the five minutes of peace you're hoping to get from the Lord. It has everything to do with a decade from now when we want you to look more like Jesus. Because that's how God's word works. We read it, and most of the time, most of the time, it is boring. Amen? Oh, we're not, we're not real today? <laughs> Don't be more holy than me. You know it. It's boring. Like you read it, and you're like, Numbers 12? What does this even mean? <laughs> But here's how God's word works. It's like a seed. And it goes into the ground. And if you try to rush a seed to produce fruit, what happens? It turns into a weed and it dies. But if you let it grow and you let it sit and you let it get the nutrients and the water and the sun, what do you have, Lord willing, in months and years to come? Fruit, a harvest. And so that's why we care deeply about you being in God's word. It's not about the moment. It's about the decade. It's about the years and years and years of following Jesus that come from getting his word in your heart 
now. Parents, just this is not in my notes. Just real quick aside, this is part of why we encourage you so much to get your word, as, get God's word as much as possible in front of your kids. It's not because it's going to necessarily shape them as a two-year-old or a three-year-old, but because we want to see decades of them following Jesus, as I'm sure you do as well. So that's the goal. All right, so what do we do? Put on love. How? Let the peace of Christ rule. We remember we're a part of Christ's body. We have gratitude and thanksgiving for our community. We get in God's word. We get God's word into us. And that leads us to the final and I would argue most important question is why? Why? Why do we put on love? Because it's the right thing to do. Sure. Because it makes us contributing members of society. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because it's what the Bible tells us. Definitely an amen. But there's something even deeper than that. And it's eerily similar to last week. Look at verse 12. So I wanted to skip it until here. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. If you like to write in your Bible, just underline that, mark it, highlight it. Put on then everything that I'm about to tell you to put on. Love, compassion, kindness, meekness, humility. Put it on. Why? Because you are God's chosen ones holy and beloved. You see, once again, just like last week, it all comes back to identity. Who you are in Christ Jesus overflows into your life in the world. And so let's just take a minute to look at who Colossians 3 says we are. If you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, here's three short yet reality-altering words. First, you are chosen. You're chosen. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 tells us, God looked out and declared that you would be a part of his kingdom. Meaning if you're in Christ, it's not because you woke up one day and was like, I guess I'm going to follow Jesus now. It's because God chose you and pursued you and won you with his love. Just hear this reality. Before you were born and became a part of history, you existed in God's heart. Long before your parents looked down at you with their admiring gaze and were like, ooh, and before you got a certificate of some accomplishment and before you had a title or prestige or relationships trying to speak identity over you, God wanted you. God wanted you. Before you did anything at all, God wanted you. You are a Christian only and solely based on the wondrous grace and favor of God. He pursued you. He wanted you. You deserved nothing. I deserved nothing. And yet we got everything because of God's miraculous love. And not only did he choose us, he made us and declared us holy. Holy in the scriptures means set apart for God, set apart for himself. So God chose us to be holy. He won us to himself so that we would be distinct from the world and set apart for life and flourishing with him. And then church, if that were not enough, mystery upon mystery, God calls you his beloved. Just wake up with me for a second. He calls you his beloved. His beloved. Christians in the room, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this can be true for you. Hear that offer through faith in Christ. But for those who trust in Jesus, would you hear this? God likes you. Yeah, but no. He likes you. (laughs) 
I mean, I was sitting upstairs in my office this morning thinking about this, and I'm in tears just thinking about this reality. God smiles at me? What? I mean, I, I studied Ecclesiastes with you guys, right? Like, we saw how big God is, did we not? We saw how he does whatever the heck he pleases. We saw how he holds all things together. We saw that he brings the good and the bad. We saw that he is the one who is over and holding all things. And he smiles at you? Like, are you kidding me? What a glorious reality that God would not just be like, man, fine. Come on. No, I guess. You're like tolerable at best, right? I mean, I, I love my kids a lot. And there are some times where it's like, please don't need me right now. <laughs> and God never does that with his children. If you are in Christ, he never does that with you. Ever. As I've heard one pastor talk about it before, what kind of person has the privilege of waking up the king at 3 a.m. out of his slumber? His child. And that's what you have in Christ Jesus. You are the beloved of God. If there was just one thing we could just push and push and push into our hearts as a church family, it would be that. That you would wake up every morning going, I'm the beloved of God. Are you kidding me? What the heck is that about? He loves me. He died for me. He smiles at me. I'm an idiot. Like, I'm really dumb most of the time. Not you, me. I'm being personal. I'm really messed up most of the time. I'm really selfish most of the time. I think about me way more than I think about God. Yet I'm his beloved. And so here's the reality, church. You don't put on love to win that. You put on love because you have that. Just like we said last week, loving others doesn't win you God's love. Having God's love creates in you love for others. So when you're sitting across the room and that person is just making you so mad, <laughs> what do you do? You ask the Lord, Lord, remind me I'm your beloved. When your spouse is frustrating you and everything within you is like, I, I'm just, I just, ugh, I'm mad. What do you do? God, remind me I'm your beloved. When someone sins against you, when they gossip about you, when they hurt you, when they say that thing to your face they never should have said in a million years, how do you learn to forgive them? God, remind me I'm the beloved. I'm the beloved of God. And then Paul's going to end it in verse 17. Here's his conclusion to the whole section, his summarizing phrase of what we've seen the past two weeks, and it's this. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Church, that's sanctification. Colossians 3.17 is sanctification. That more and more, because we're the beloved, welcomed, chosen of God, that we would do more and more everything, every word we speak, every action we take, we would do more and more in the name of Christ Jesus. That I would say as I'm entering into the conversation on Tuesday with my coworker, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. That as I'm parenting and discipling my kid, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. As I'm encouraging or confronting someone about their sin, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. As I'm sending the text, making the phone call, cooking the meal, watching the television show, scrolling through Instagram, I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. And that's how fruit comes. 
resting, and this is where we'll close, resting in the deepest reality that your old self is dead and you're raised with Christ and you are the chosen and holy beloved of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we have hearts of disbelief. Lord, there's a lot of beautiful reality that you've just showed us in Colossians 3, Lord. I mean, truth that should make our hearts sing and break at the same time. Now, there's a lot of deep realities of how you care for us and you love us. You've won us to yourself despite our faults, despite our sin, despite our shortcomings, despite our inabilities, despite our attempts to be God, despite our attempts to save ourselves, despite our best attempts to run from you. Lord, you, as we've been saying this morning, have patience that waits while we constantly roam. And yet, as a tender father, you just keep calling us back to yourself. And so, Lord, I into beautiful realities of you, Lord, that you love us in Christ Jesus, and yet except by the power of your Holy Spirit, we will never believe that. So we need you to do what only you can do. God, we rest on the promise that your word never fails. And so we hear your word, we receive your word, we hear Colossians 3, we believe it's true, and we ask you to do what only you can do. Take it Put it in our hearts for the decades of following you still to come. Need you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said.